What a wonderful hymn. I had not heard that before. Steve told me in staff meeting this morning, he said, you're going to like this. And I do. That is absolutely gorgeous. Choir orchestra, thank you. Crystal Bells, thank you. It's been a good morning of uh, music, and I'll probably mess it up now, but that's all right. You, you get all of it for the same price. Well, today we're going to continue our series from the Sermon on the Mount. And we're looking at a passage of scripture that is somewhat controversial and oftentimes misunderstood. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is said to be the oldest law in all the world. In fact, it is recorded in the Code of Hammurabi, who reigned in Babylon from 2285 B.C. to 2242 B.C. It is also found three times in the Jewish law in Exodus chapter 21, Leviticus chapter 24, and Deuteronomy chapter 19. Usually when we hear an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we think of it in terms of being a harsh law, that it's the law of the Old West, don't get mad, get even. Actually, the law was given to be merciful. Barclay wrote, its original aim was definitely the limitation of vengeance. It lays it down that only the man who committed the injury must be punished, and his punishment must be no more than the equivalent of the injury he has inflicted and the damage he has done. All right, so take your Bibles and let's look at the story in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 38. Jesus continues to teach. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. All right, we begin with the Old Testament law given by Moses, and he had two goals in mind as he gave the law in the Old Testament. First of all, it was for the purpose to control excesses. So Moses gave the law then that he might be able to control the excesses that were prevalent at the time. Now we've already seen that when we studied about divorce. At the time of Moses, divorce was common. A man could divorce his wife virtually for any reason. If she went in public with her head uncovered, if she were not a good homemaker, if she were not a good cook, if she spoke to another man, all of those were legitimate reasons for a man to divorce his wife if he chose to. So when Moses gave the law of divorcement, he was trying to control the excesses. So he gave one grounds, some indecency. We're not exactly sure what that is, but some indecency. That was the grounds for divorce that Moses gave. Secondly, he said that the man was to give her a bill of divorcement, and on the bill of divorcement, he had to have the reason he had divorced her. This was for the protection of the woman. Thirdly, to emphasize the seriousness of it, he said if a man divorces his wife, 
then he cannot remarry her. So Moses then gave the law of divorce in order to control the excesses that were there. When he spoke about oaths, and we didn't look at that, we skipped over that, but he gave the law concerning oaths in order to reduce lying. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 23, 23, you shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips. Well, in our text, he is dealing with violence. And remember, he is trying to control the excesses, so he is dealing with violence. There are two basic explanations as to why man is violent. We know that man is violent. Why? Why is man violent? Well, there are two explanations. The evolutionist teaches that man is violent because of their teaching of the survival of the fittest. In other words, man has to be violent in order to survive. It just goes with it. The survival of the fittest, the one who is the fittest, survives, and so that's the reason. The theist, on the other hand, believes that man is violent because he has a sinful heart. So man then is violent because his heart is not right. His heart is sinful. So man then is violent. How is that controlled? Well, to the evolutionist, you control it externally with soldiers, with law, with police, etc. So you control it externally. With the theist, it is controlled internally by conversion. That is what we believe. We believe that a man's heart needs to be changed because his heart is sinful. And if his heart is changed, then he becomes a new creature in Christ. So Moses then gave the law to control excesses. Secondly, he gave the law to establish justice. So Moses had two goals when he gave the law, to control excesses and to ensure justice. So here he says that the punishment is to fit the crime. Verse number 38, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So what he is saying is that there is to be an appropriate punishment for crime. You see, normally we want to collect with interest, do we not? When someone does us wrong, we want to collect with interest. Now understand, Moses was from a tribal society. And in that society, if someone from this tribe offended, attacked, or killed someone from this tribe, then this tribe would go over to wreak vengeance on the offending tribe. Oftentimes, the punishment was greater than the crime. So when Moses said an eye for an eye, a tooth for two, it is that the punishment would be equal to the offense. Secondly, the law was to be litigated by the court. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 18 and 21, and the, and the judges shall investigate thoroughly. That was the instruction given concerning this. And the judges shall investigate thoroughly. Thus you shall show pity, not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So Moses gave the law. He said that it was to be enforced by the courts. And scholars agree that this was never carried out 
in a civilized society on a general basis. Why? Well, because of the possibility of injustice. Barclay wrote, the Jewish jurist argued rightly that to carry it out literally might in fact be the reverse of justice because it obviously might involve the displacement of a good eye or good tooth for a bad eye or a bad tooth. In other words, eye for an eye, not, uh, tooth for tooth, let's say that you knocked out one of my teeth and it was bad and I knocked out one of your teeth and it was good, then it would be unjust. So, because of that, they assessed damages monetarily. The judgment was normally a monetary judgment because of the possibility of injustice. Now, that was the law of Moses. Now, you know that the Pharisees interpreted the law. In fact, the Pharisees misinterpreted much of the law of Moses. They saw this as a positive command. In other words, it was your duty. If someone offended you, if someone did something to you, it was your duty to exact justice on that person. They saw it as a duty. The problem was that was a conflict with the other teachings of Moses. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 18, he said, you shall not take vengeance. Now the Pharisee says it's your duty. But Moses had also said, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbors as yourself. I am the Lord. We have a tendency to make the same mistake as the Pharisees, don't we? Someone offends me, it is my duty to defend my honor. And so we make the same mistake. For instance, in baseball, if a pitcher on one team happens to hit a batter on the other team, and it is deemed to be intentional, well, when the pitcher from the opposing team stands up, it is his duty to hit one of the batters from the other team. That was the Pharisees. That was the way that they approached that. It is your duty to defend yourself when you are done wrong. It was seen as a personal matter. This was not taken as far as the Pharisees were concerned. This is not something that was to be taken to the courts. It was something that they handled themselves. And so they levied personal vengeance on the offender. So we have the Moses law, his instruction concerning this. And then we have the Pharisees' interpretation as to what they said it meant. And they misinterpreted what Moses had said. And then we have Jesus' integration. You see, Jesus integrates the law and grace. He brings them together. Both are important. Law and grace, both are important. But if they are not integrated, then there is not a balance in our understanding of the Word of God. So Jesus then gives us principles for integration, and they are consistent throughout the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, he emphasizes the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You see, folks, 
the law was never meant to, to, or the word of God was never meant to be a set of rules. That's what the Pharisees thought, and oftentimes uh, I am more comfortable with that, aren't you? I mean, if I just had a lot of rules that were there and I could check them off and say, yeah, I kept this and I kept this and I kept this, and then I'm, I'm more comfortable. But the truth is the Word of God was never meant to be a set of rules. And we make the mistake of the Pharisees when we make it such. So what Jesus did was to integrate law and grace. Both are important. He said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. So the law is important, no question about that. But his emphasis was on grace. So he, he, he integrated the two of them, law and grace. They go together. You don't separate them. They go together. Secondly, or the second principle, is that your interpretation of God's word is not to be absurd. When we fail to integrate law and grace, then we come up with some absurd interpretations of God's word. For instance, sin and grace. Okay? The Libertines in New Testament times took the position that grace is greater than sin. I'm sure you would agree with that. Grace is greater than sin. But what they concluded was that since grace is greater than sin, the more you sin, the more grace there is. So the Bible says in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So with the libertines who believe that you could do anything, they totally forgot about the law, any of that, the morality and all of that, they, they set that aside, just grace. And so they believe that if you wanted more grace in the world, then sin more. Because the more sin there is, the more grace there is. Look at verse number 39. For I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. You see, when, when we do not integrate the two, then we oftentimes come up with an absurd interpretation concerning our response to evil. As a matter of fact, Count Tolstoy said that we are not to resist evil... So having police or soldiers is unchristian based on this verse. Based on that verse, he said that we ought, we're not to resist evil. So it is not Christian if we have the police, if we have the law enforcement, if we have the, the, the soldier, if we have an army to protect ourselves. He said that was unchristian. So your interpretation is not to be absurd and your interpretation is be, to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. Now, when we don't lock the two together, we don't integrate law and grace, we come up with absurd interpretations concerning the Word of God. And then the Bible says that as we interpret the Word of God, it must be consistent with the rest of Scripture. 2 Peter 1.20 says, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, you don't go and take one verse of Scripture, pull it out, build a doctrine on it. You must make sure that it is consistent with the other teachings of Scripture. Now, verse number 39 again. 
But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. All right, now taken by itself, if that verse is taken by itself, it sounds as if Jesus were a pacifist. But he was not passive concerning his arrest. The Bible says in John 18, 22 and 23, And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of me. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Jesus was not passive. He was not a pacifist. But if you take that verse by itself, it would sound as if he were. Verse number 42. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. All right. Are, are we supposed then, if anyone comes to us and asks us for money, are you supposed to give it to them? Hmm? No questions asked? Is that what you're supposed, isn't that what it says? Maybe you're asleep and I've misread it. Let me see. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You satisfied with that like that? You're not. Stingy bunch of Baptists. <laughs> no, you it, see, it, it has to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. All right, so we have that teaching there, but then the Apostle Paul said, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. So what Jesus is teaching us here is that if we are going to interpret the Scripture rightly, then it must be consistent with the rest of Scripture. And then he gave us some instructions for integration. Verse number 39b he said, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this is dealing with an insult. A person is insulted. We have to deal with that. Someone is insulted. Now, you will notice that he says specifically, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Right. In order to be slapped on the right cheek by a right-handed man, he has to backhand you. And the rabbi said that to be backhanded was twice as offensive as to be slapped with the flat of the hand. So it's dealing with an insult. So that's what we're dealing with here is an insult. There are many ways to be insulted. and One can be insulted physically. Uh, you look at Jesus and his life and uh, he was slapped, he was spat upon, his beard was plucked. He, he, was, he, was, uh, he was abused, he was insulted physically. And then we can insult someone verbally. Jesus was said to be a glutton and a wine-bibber. The Apostle Paul, and I love this, you know, the, the, the accusation brought against the Apostle Paul because they said he was ugly. He's not a handsome man. So he wasn't someone who was handsome and he wasn't a good speaker. And that was some of the criticism that was brought against the Apostle Paul. He wasn't handsome and he wasn't a good speaker. Well, we know what it is to be insulted today, don't we? I mean, if you believe the Bible is the Word of God and you take it literally as the Word of God, then we know what it is to be insulted today. 
I, I hear people today and, and, and Bible believers are attacked as being out of the mainstream. They are extremists. Uh, they are people to be feared. Did you know that? I mean, there are, some, there are people today who think that you are a terrorist organization. That the very fact that you come to church, you worship the Lord Jesus is the only way of salvation, that you believe the Bible to be the Word of God, you are a terrorist. So we understand that. We understand what it is to be insulted, but how do we respond? How are we supposed to respond when we are insulted? Well, personally, we don't retaliate because it does give us an opportunity to present a Christian witness. Okay, so we don't retaliate. That's personally Practically, we are not expected to tolerate abuse. Now, I know you expect me to say the first part, that we're not to retaliate. But if I'm going to be consistent, then we are also not expected to tolerate abuse. The Apostle Paul was arrested. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. And then it discovered, lo and behold, that he was a Roman citizen. You can't do that to a Roman citizen. The Roman government could, could not do that to a Roman citizen. They discovered that Paul was a Roman citizen, so they said, well, we've got to fix this. What we ought to do is to go down there and tell Paul, you know, hey, we're, we're, we're sorry that this happened. And, uh, you know, we want, to, we want to issue an apology. In fact, I just put one out on Twitter. And so we apologize to you. And now if you will just go ahead and leave town, then I think that everything will be all right. If you want to come back, we'll give you a room at the bed and breakfast. Acts 16, 37. Paul said, they have beaten us in public without trial. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. Paul said, I, I, I'm not going to play that game. They have done wrong, and now then they want to cover it up secretly. He said, no, you have them to come down here publicly and turn me loose, and then I'll leave. You see? Another example, verse number 40. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. I do believe that the that the the Christian relinquishes his rights because vengeance belongs to God. Vengeance belongs to God, so I relinquish my rights. But I'll tell you what I have done. There have been times when people have, have done things to me, and I really wanted to retaliate. I know that surprised you that I would want to do that, but I'm not that much different from you. But I have in prayer gone to the Lord and given people over to God. Say, God, you know about this. And this has happened. And you have said that vengeance belongs to you. And so I give this person into your hands. And you do with him what is right. Another example, verse 41. And whoever will force you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, this is an example of resentment towards the government because Rome was in control of Israel, in control of the Hebrews, 
and a Roman soldier had the right to demand that a Jew would carry his pack for one mile. Well, the Jews resented that tremendously. And so what many of them would do was mark off a place exactly one mile away from their house, and they would drive a stake there. And when the Roman soldier came by and forced the Jew to carry his pack, he would carry it one mile to that stake and throw it down. His duty was done. And then, lo and behold, Jesus comes along and says, carry it too. Isn't that just like the Lord? I mean, it's bad enough having to carry it one, but now then I have to carry it two. Why is that important? Because it gives us the opportunity to show the world that we're different as followers of Christ. Barclay wrote, when a task is laid on you, even if the task is unreasonable and hateful, don't do it as a grim duty to be resented. Do it as a service to be gladly rendered. Well, that's a, that's a test, isn't it? But that's what we've been called to. Another example, verse number 42 Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. The rabbis gave five principles for giving, and I think that they're interesting and, and uh, largely apply. But the rabbis had five principles for giving. They said, first of all, that giving is not to be refused. The rabbi said, everyone who refuses charity is put in the same category as idolaters. So giving is not to be refused. Giving, they said, was to remove humiliation. Don't just restore the needy, but help them retain at least a part of their standard before the difficulty came to them. That was the rabbi's belief. Thirdly, they said giving is to be done secretly. I do not know to whom I give, and the one who receives does not know who gave. It is to be done in secret. Giving is to benefit the recipient. And they said, if someone had the means to take care of themselves but did not and you gave, then you were to take from their estate what you had given. If someone does not have the means and you give to them, don't ever ask for it back. And fifthly, they say that giving was a privilege. Let me conclude. This is an interesting passage of Scripture, but what is its aim? What's its purpose? Well, in my opinion, its purpose is to get us on a practical level to look at ourselves and ask ourselves the question, am I dead to self that I might be a follower of Christ? I think that's the purpose. It is a way that I can examine myself to ask myself, am I dead to self that I might be a follower of Christ? So, he says, the old nature of vengeance is not to control us. That's verse 38. He says that we die to the natural desire to retaliate. That's verse 39. And then he says that when we are done unjustly, we give that to the Lord. That's verse 40 and 41. 
And then verse 42, it is an understanding that everything belongs to God. I own nothing, nor do you. It all belongs to God. And I am to honor him with that that he has allowed me to be steward over. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, the way that it touches our heart and helps us to examine our spiritual condition. And I pray, Lord, uh, that today as, as the Holy Spirit takes your word and applies it to the hearts of people, those who have never come to know Christ would. And I pray, Lord, for those who need to do something in obedience to your call on their life will. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing a hymn of invitation, an opportunity for you to respond to the Lord, whatever he wants you to do. If you've never trusted him, I pray that you'll come today and trust him. If you're looking for a church home, my door's open. Love to have you. You come. Stand with me, please. As we stand, they sing. You come. I'll greet you as you do.